the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Monday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions. Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart, all you need to do is call us, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else will be hands-free and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you had a great weekend in church. We did here. Lots and lots of people were here. And, um, you know, a month with five Sundays. Um, it was a really, really good day yesterday. I'm really grateful for the Lord and the Spirit moving here at Calvary Chapel, and I trust that was the same uh, at your church. Um, tonight here at our church, we have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies all going on at 7 o'clock. Um, you can bring the whole family and find uh, something for every part of your family. Uh, ladies, the uh, Sweet Summer Devotion Series continues tonight with Trish Dominguez, who will be speaking, sharing her heart. I'm really excited about this. This is a family, not just Trish, but her whole family. She's here every day with uh, five kids in tow. Uh, and and they're having a blast cleaning and doing stuff, uh, and you can just see what's happened in their lives since since they, they just decided Jesus, I'm going to live for you, uh, and and I'm really excited to hear what she's going to say. I know she's nervous, but uh, it will be a blessing. Remember, uh, well, you can watch it live stream at calvarysa.com. Uh, it's always better to be here if you're anywhere in the area. That way you can participate in the Q&A afterwards. And there's always an awful lot of ministry that occurs that way. So uh, good night tonight. Uh, Pastor Ken will be teaching the men. And Pastor Matthew and Pastor Chris will be teaching the high schoolers and the junior high schoolers at the same time. Well, let's get to some questions and then we'll wait for any phone calls. I don't really know what to do with this first question, but I've promised I wouldn't sidestep questions. So uh, here's an anonymous question. Uh, hello, Pastor Ron. I hope this message finds you well. As a member of your church, I wanted to bring up a concern. I've noticed that you sometimes speak negatively about Leviticus during our gatherings. While I understand that some people may hesitate to read certain parts of the Old Testament, the jokes about Leviticus seem excessive. Personally, I believe this approach could be seen as irresponsible and may discourage believers, especially those who are impressionable, from reading through Leviticus. I read Leviticus a few months ago for the first time, and I only wish I had done it sooner. It truly made me realize what a blessing it is to live under the new covenant. Uh, nonetheless, I just want to share my perspective with you. Thank you for your time. Um, Anonymous, I'm really grateful, really grateful that uh, you read it 
and uh, one of the one of the effects of it uh, is that uh, you realize how blessed we are uh, under the new covenant. What a gift it is! And uh, Leviticus is is um, it's inspired by God. It's important. Uh, and we all need to glean. However, and I want to say this as kindly as I can, um, I don't think you understand irony. You know, one of my jobs as a Bible teacher is to get people to read and really spend some time with books that uh, the reality is very few New Testament Christians ever read. Uh, and what I want to do is pique people's curiosity and their understanding. And I'm trying to motivate them to to stick with it through the whole thing. There's 27 chapters in Leviticus. And um, usually by the time you get to a, the end of a book like that, uh, the crowd is half the size as it was when you started. Now, uh, those are individual decisions and nothing that I'm doing is to attract a crowd. But what I want people to do is think about it. And when I have made jokes about Leviticus, um, um, I've done it with the, 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 the intention of, of saying, you know what, this book will challenge you. Uh, it will help your discipline. But at the same time, the Lord will speak to you in this. And so what I want them to do is read it. And if you were here uh, in all three of our Leviticus studies, or no, just two of them now, uh, if you were here in those studies, um, I think you, you heard me say um, that that I hope that they read every word, not not just um, listen to me, not just come to the Bible study and try to pick up a few salient points. But my prayer is that they will read it for themselves. And, uh, you know, sometimes, Anonymous, we have to just sort of um, hunker down and do the work. And uh, too many of us as New Testament Christians are only looking for those goosebump passages and, and the tingling sensations we get when the Spirit of God is speaking to us. Uh, but one of the things that um, um, I want people to do is find out for themselves. And if there is no value to the book, uh, and, and of course we know there is, but even if somebody says, well, this is all Old Testament stuff, it doesn't apply to me, why should I read it? God rewards our self-discipline, and um, He'll speak to people. So I'm 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 trying to approach it in a way. Uh, the reality is that very many people, or most people, don't read it, um, and many who start to read it sort of fizzle out uh, once they get past the first couple of chapters. I'm trying to challenge people to read it for themselves. And uh, the way I do it is simply to to uh, kind of make jokes about the reality of the situation regarding Leviticus. So that's all. Obviously, if you come here, you know I love the Word of God. Um, I haven't had anybody else say anything to me about it. I've had a couple of people say, you know, thank you because Leviticus is boring. Yeah, well, let's dig in. Let's mine through Leviticus and see what the Lord it wants to do. You know, one of the comments you made, you realized that you were uh, you were blessed to be under the new covenant. Uh, just today, I was reading about Aaron going into the Holy of Holies uh, and making atonement, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And as I was reading it, just like you, Anonymous, I just kept thinking, Lord, thank you that I don't have to dress like that to come up to this pulpit and teach the Bible every day. So uh, my, my own personal belief, and if I'm wrong, I, I apologize, um, but, but my own personal opinion is that rather than discouraging believers, the approach that I've taken will challenge the believers to get into the book. Believe me, my heart uh, is for uh, every inspired word of our Bibles, and I really want people to dig in and discipline themselves to do that. So I hope that um, matters. And I just was corrected. I have only one study so far in Leviticus. It's last day of July, so um, time is just going by so fast. I was telling Paula when I got up this morning that um, uh, we got back from vacation on July 1st, and I got up this morning and said, Paul, this is the last day of July. Doesn't it seem like vacation was like a year ago? 
And uh, that's how fast time is going. So I, I hope that makes sense to you, Anonymous. I certainly, certainly wasn't trying to demean or diminish the value of the word regardless. Here is a second anonymous question. Hello, Pastor Ron. I just recently got married and moved out of my mom's house. She's a widow and has been talking to a man for a few months. He's a nice guy. I was glad she's finally put herself out there. The problem is that they're not saved, and I knew that it may happen, or I knew what may happen as soon as I moved out. Unfortunately, I found out that he stayed a few nights the moment I left, and I'm heartbroken. Uh, We tell each other everything, or so I thought. And she even went out of her way to hide it. She thinks I don't know, but I've not talked to her in a few days. So by now she probably gave the hint that I do in fact know. Uh, Even though she's not saved, I always saw her as a respectable woman. And now I don't know what to think. What do I do? I feel like if I talk to her, I'm going to scream. But I know it'll ruin my witness, so I just haven't. Well, congratulations on not ruining your witness. And I'm sure that from a worldly perspective, your mother is a respectable woman. But unsaved adults have sex. Anonymous, that's the reality. For you to have any other expectation of your mom is you being naive. So this is what people do. And, and she is a grown woman. Uh, she knows your position on the Lord. I think it's important that you sit down face to face and tell her that what she is doing is sin and this sin will separate her from a relationship with God. You might use the opportunity to witness to her. Jesus is coming back soon. Um, but at the same time, you have to give her the space to make the choice. So you moving out is not your fault, and uh, all you can do is witness to to her about the Lord and uh, respect her free will to make a decision. But I want to repeat this. It is naive for any of us to expect that our unsaved friends, family members, even our mothers or our fathers, uh, are not going to do sinful things because that's what um, people do. And it is why Jesus came and died. So keep pointing your mother to Jesus. Don't argue with her. Don't scold her. Uh, Just let her know that I left, you brought a man in, and mom, it broke my heart. And the reason it broke my heart is because it revealed that your heart is far from God. And he loves you. He died for your sins. And if you ever want to get right with God, then come back to me and I'll introduce you to Jesus who will forgive all of your sins and take you to heaven. So that's that's the approach. Uh, I think maybe you're a little overly involved and your zeal, uh, Anonymous, should be spent, I think, in prayer for your mom rather than uh, immediately um, deciding that she's not who you thought she was. I want to say this again. People that don't know Jesus, whether they're teenagers or senior citizens, if they get involved in a relationship, they have sex because they don't care that sex is wrong. They don't care what God says. And we should have no expectation at all in any other direction. So I hope that helps. Here is a question. This one is from Kirby from our email inbox. Um, this is about my study yesterday. Pastor Ron, what do you think happened to Gentiles in the 10 years from when Peter preached to them at Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10 to the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15? What I mean is, were there any other converts to Christianity from the Gentiles? Uh, And then he says, I assume that there were. Or was it not up until Paul and Barnabas started their first mission trip that it became an issue with the way the Pharisees um, Pharisee Christians reacted to Paul and Barnabas' testimony. I took this situation as if this was the first time they're dealing with this kind of a mystery. Um, Kirby, I, I think no, there were plenty of Gentiles getting saved. Uh, one of the things that once the door was open to Gentiles and the apostles were going out and spreading the word, people were getting saved everywhere. But the reason in this 10-year period of time, and what what Kirby's talking about there is is um, um, from the day of Pentecost, uh, Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 15, the council at Jerusalem, was 20 years. And in the middle of that 20 years, when Cornelius' household was saved, that was 10 years. So 10 years right in the middle of the, the life 
history of the church at this point, uh, and so many people are getting saved, I think what happened was the Jews got uh, a little bit more radical in their opposition. And I think the growth of the gospel, the inclusion of Gentiles, and the fact that Gentiles were not converting to becoming Jews. They weren't being circumcised. They weren't worshiping on the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, uh, nor were they celebrating the festivals and feasts. I think that really caused concern among the Jews and even some of those who were Christians, but who were holding on to those religious traditions. So I think it is the expansion of Gentiles uh, in the church that that caused them the most concern and I think brought this whole thing to a head. And one of the things I said, and, and uh, Kirby would be aware of this because he was here yesterday, but um, one of the things I said was that um, when we hold on to traditions, we're not willing to open our hearts and our minds to what the Lord is saying to us. For you and for me, it's in the Word. But uh, back then, it was through the apostles. Um, you know, we have to realize that, that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And just like we now here in 2023, uh, in the first century church, people, especially the Jews, were unwilling to let go of the old. They had so much invested in it. They believed it was was the, the the right way to approach God. They were sincere. They were sincerely wrong. And even those who were believers in Jerusalem at the council, the Bible is very clear. They were believers, but their doctrine was wrong. And uh, one of the things, Kirby, that, that we need to understand is that there's a lot of people who have bad doctrine who are going to be in heaven. They just don't know. They just haven't studied. Like the Jews, they were unwilling to let go of their past traditions. We see that all the time. We have people come from, for example, a Seventh-day Adventist tradition. And and they look at us like, well, why aren't you worshiping on the Sabbath? And we try to open the Bible. They're just unwilling. Nope, I believe this my whole life. This is the way I was raised. Uh, and they're unwilling to look at what the Bible actually says and a little hesitant to receive the freedom that Jesus paid so dearly for. So I hope that makes sense to you, Kirby. Thank you very, very much. But yeah, the uh, the Jews uh, were um, very reluctant uh, to accept Gentile inclusion uh, in the early church unless or until uh, those uh, Gentiles would become Jewish. Are we still in that same issue here? Messianic uh, congregation still holding on to the old covenant, uh, still holding on to to uh, their traditions, um, and, and with no biblical reason whatsoever for doing it. Here's a question from Tony. Tony says, can you accept Jesus without following him? Tony, this is an interesting timing for me for the question because we just talked about this in uh, my pastor's discipleship class this past Saturday. You know, Jesus uh, never called anybody to an altar call. He never called anybody um, uh, to a religious system. Uh, he called people to himself and said, follow me. And the born-again believer has to understand that that's what repentance is. It's a change in direction in life. Before we met Jesus, we were going after one thing. We met Jesus, and then he says, my sheep know my voice, I call them by name, and they follow me. And so uh, the reality, Tony, is that uh, people come and they make professions of faith all the time. But unless they are willing to follow Jesus, they haven't been born again. They haven't met him. You know, we live in a church culture where people uh, emotionally, they know that what they're doing is wrong or maybe their lives are falling apart and things are really, really difficult for them and they have this emotional let go. And they'll answer an invitation. Some even will get baptized. Uh, but that's where the relationship stops. And they think, okay, well, I've sort of signed my contract, so I'm going to be okay. Jesus says, no, a Christian is defined by those who are following me. Now, Jesus is the authority here. He said, to be my disciple, you must pick up your cross daily. That means you have to die to yourself every day. That means you have to look at you and say no so you can say yes to Jesus. Pick up your cross and follow me. 
And the man or the woman who says they're a Christian, but they're not following Jesus, is deceiving themselves. And Tony, I've said on this program, I don't know how long you've been listening, but I've said on this program many, many times, I think fully half of the people that go to church every Sunday are not really born-again believers because there's no evidence nor desire of them following Jesus again. I mean, they just, their lives have not changed. And I don't think um, it's possible to meet Jesus without your life changing radically. Now, some people change faster than others, to be sure. But when you meet him, when you really meet him, when you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you. And that has to produce a change. That's what changed the world in the first century. People knew that they were sinners. People knew they needed to be saved. And they followed Jesus. Paul, writing to the churches in Thessalonica, he talks about their old previous lifestyle. And then he says, And such were some of you, but you have been washed, you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And, and the, the, the implication is clearly that everything changed. And one of the missions, Tony, that I happen to be on now is I want people to, to, to leave here every Sunday with no excuse. Wednesday, Friday, the same thing, with no excuse. Uh, if their life hasn't changed, I want them to leave thinking, well, what makes me think I'm really a Christian? You're not a Christian because you say you are. You're not a Christian because you answered an altar call. You're not a Christian because you got baptized. You're not a Christian because you're a Texan. We're raised to be a Christian. You're a Christian because you met Jesus and everything changed in your life. And that's what identifies us as a Christian. And so uh, the man or the woman who is not following him, they can say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I accepted Jesus into my heart. None of that has any value. Jesus said, follow me. And if we're not following him, what would make us think that we're really Christians? Ephesians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, Paul lists a whole lifestyle of sin, different sins, and says people that live like this, not people that occasionally mess up, but people who live like this, people whose lives are characterized by this kind of behavior. He says very clearly, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. And for any Bible teacher, for that matter, any Christian, to soften the impact of that, I believe is sin. Our job is to tell his story, not the story we want to hear. And I think too often, Tony, this whole idea, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm just backsliding now. That's just a polite way of saying, you know, I'm, I'm sinning and I'm going to keep on sinning because I'm not ready to stop. Well, if you're not ready to stop sinning, you haven't met Jesus. It really is that simple. So, Tony, thank you for the question. With three minutes, I got time for another question. This half of the uh, program before zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Penny. She wants to know about N. T. Wright. Have you read his new perspective on Paul and Paul's epistles? Um, Penny, I have not read. I've read bits and pieces of them. I've listened to uh, some of a little bit of N. T. Wright's um, lectures. Um, a smart guy, great communicator, uh, but he's outsmarted himself. Um, um, there is no new perspective on Paul. There's no new perspective on his letters. What Paul wrote uh, in the first century uh, is just as valid as it is in 2023. Um, what he meant when he wrote it then, he means now to the time we live in. And one of the things that is so irritating to me as a pastor is uh, the access everybody now has. <clears throat> Excuse me, I had to cough. Uh, the access everybody has to all this stuff on the Internet. And a guy like N.T. Wright, who would have got no traction at all before YouTube, uh, now gets all this traction. And because he's a smart guy, uh, he persuades people that, well, you know, we've had the wrong perspective on Paul all along. And that simply isn't true. Giants of our faith have been commenting on the epistles of Paul from the very beginning. And Paul meant what he wrote. 
And uh, Penny, just remember this. If it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. That's a great way to remember um, to protect yourself against these new ideas that are coming out. You know, the Bible says that uh, in the end times, and this is certainly a sign of the end times, we're going to be deceived. But he said people will gather around themselves teachers who will uh, give them what their itching ears desire. In other words, um, you want to hear good stuff? You want to hear a different perspective that doesn't cost so much? No problem. I've got it for you. And you know what? They get really popular. They sell some books. Uh, N.T. Wright is an Episcopal. Uh, The Episcopal Church has long since thrown Jesus out of their church, and they've thrown the Bible out of their theology. Uh, So uh, just be very, very careful. I just don't think there's anything of value uh, when somebody is writing that. By the way, N.T. Wright is also an opponent of penal substitutionary atonement, which is truly an essential of the historic Christian faith. So, Penny, I hope that makes sense to you. Hey, we'd love your calls. We've got 30 minutes left, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Monday show, 340-9585. We would love your live calls and questions. Just a quick um, sort of scheduling announcement. This coming Sunday... Uh, we're going to be having our having our summer baptism event. Um, I say that because if you in the radio audience have not been baptized, but you're a born again believer, then um, you you need to do that. You need to repent first of all, and then you need to do that. Uh, and it's going to be uh, we're gonna we're gonna start eating at three o'clock, and then uh, we'll go into the water at at four o'clock. Uh, but it's a house in the country, a uh, really nice setting. And uh, if you are interested, you can get directions. Uh, you can go to our website, calvarysa.com. But believe me, you're going to need directions and GPS because it is out in the country. So that is this coming Sunday at uh, 3 o'clock for food and 4 o'clock to get into the water. And we will do that on time. Here's a question from Jackson. Jackson, I haven't heard from you for a while. It's good to hear from you. He says, why did Jesus call his father God in John chapter 20? He never did that before. Um, Jackson, two things. One, that's a wonderful observation. A lot of people miss that. You know, we get so used to calling them God that, that we don't. But, but this is the only time in Jesus' life that he called him anything other than, than father. We, the, the word in, in Hebrew or Aramaic would be Abba. Um, um, but the reason he called his father God, because at this point, uh, his father had turned his back on him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, for the very first time, Jackson, in his life, was alone. The presence of his father um, hidden from him. As Jesus became sin, your sin and mine, uh, the father looked away. Um and and so Jesus had a sort of a stranger relationship with him in that moment. And I think because of Jesus' humanity, uh, we understand that moment. But there was also one other thing, um, Jackson, that Jesus was doing, is he was evangelizing. Now, he wouldn't have used that term. Jews wouldn't have used that term. But Jesus was quoting a psalm that Jews understood was messianic. And so from the cross, when he said, my God, my God, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? Um, they, they, they willfully misunderstood him. Well, he's calling Elijah. No, he was quoting a psalm that was messianic, letting you know, sort of a last chance. It's not too late. You can be saved. Letting them know that he was the Messiah that that psalm spoke to. So, Jackson, I hope that answers your question. Really sad, you know, um, 
from Abba to Father uh, was a seismic shift spiritually. Here's an anonymous question. Um, I dated a woman who's broken things off with me because I'm not a Christian. I think this is a very narrow view of life. She seems brainwashed to me. And here you are, Anonymous, listening to a Christian radio program. So here's what's important. The woman that you were dating has decided that she loves Jesus more than she loves you. She wants to please Jesus more than she wants to please you. And nothing nothing she could do would be better. What she's done is she's affirmed her relationship with Jesus Christ by saying, look, I almost got carried away with a relationship with an unbeliever. Now, the Bible says that we're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, I don't expect an unbelieving person like you to understand this, but I want you to consider just for a moment, through your, through your pain and through your anger, consider just for a moment this woman's position. Why would she want to be involved in a relationship with somebody who's going to go to hell? Why would she want to marry somebody who's not going to be in heaven and spend forever with her? You see, to this woman who broke things off with you, Jesus is more than a religious figure. Jesus is her Savior, her Lord. And that means we do what he tells us to do. And what is a very narrow view of life to you is a, a view of life to, to me and to people like me um, because we understand the pain in that woman's life had she stayed with you and eventually married you. The pain in her life would have been immense. You may think you're the nicest guy in the world, but, but you have nothing at all in common. Nothing at all in common. And... Jesus has to be the center of any of our relationships if we're truly born-again believers. Now, I do a lot of marriage counseling, Anonymous, and the most pain by far of any of the counseling we do is a result of unequally yoked relationships. So what's narrow to you makes perfect sense to her, to me. Uh, She's simply decided that as nice a guy as you are and maybe as interested in you as she might have been, She loves Jesus more. Now let me make a suggestion to you. Maybe her commitment to the Lord will open your eyes to the fact that she's found something real, something fulfilling. Her love affair is with Jesus. And who knows, maybe if you come to a genuine saving relationship with Jesus Christ... God will put things back together, but the truth is you're heading different directions eternally. She's going to heaven. You're going to hell. And the pain that God spared her from this relationship is simply because he loves her. So, hope that makes sense. Hope you get saved. And um, one of these days, I'd like to meet the woman who broke things off and give her a hug and congratulate her. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Carl says, I'm sure all Christians believe some wrong things. You're right, Carl. We do. Then he says this, Why then are Mormons excluded from the real faith because they're wrong about some things? Carl, they're wrong about the one thing that's the most important. What Mormons are wrong, and the same thing is true of Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults, they're wrong about Jesus. Now, Mormons, as you know, use the same kind of language that that Christians use. Yeah, I'm saved. Jesus died for my sins. Uh, the Son of God saved the world. I, they, they use the same terms, but they mean completely different things. Their Jesus is not the Creator God. John chapter 1 says there was nothing made that wasn't made by Him. Not only that, but he is currently, he holds all things together. And uh, if if the Jesus of the Mormons is not God, not a God, little g, but if he's not God, the creator of all things, then they have a Jesus they can't save. I tell a joke on this program from time to time about my one of my Spanish translators, Jesus, and he called on this program one day, and on my screen where the the, the, uh, names 
in in the location of the people who are calling are. It says Jesus from uh, driving in from Austin, and so I got on the phone. I said, I just got a message. Jesus is driving in from Austin. Jesus, you're on the on the air, and he says, so sorry, Pesteron, it's only me. Hey, Jesus, your translator. Well, they got the same name, but they're not the same person. The Mormon Jesus is not God, and only God can forgive sins. And the definition of a cult is somebody who changes the nature and the character of Jesus Christ, and that's what Mormons do. So um, they don't have the right Jesus. They are lost in their sins. And you can invent Jesus, you can call the same name, but if it's not Jesus of the Bible, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God who is God the Son, then you don't have a, 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 a Jesus, a Savior, who can really save. Mormons believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, sort of the, the good brother of the two. And of course, that's blasphemy. That's why Mormons are wrong. Anonymous says, I'm getting some contrary questions today. How can we not think God should heal any disease or illness that a Christian has? Um, you asked a question like it's a given fact. I don't know why anybody with a reading of the Bible would think that God is obligated to heal any disease or illness. The only reason anybody would think that is if they believe that the God that they've created in their own mind, he's certainly not the God of the Bible, the God that they, they've created in their own mind, that his obligation is to make sure that we have happy lives with no problems. But that's not who God is. The God we serve didn't even answer his own son's prayer to have this cup passed from him. He didn't rescue Jesus from the cross. He drove him to the cross. The same God didn't keep the Apostle Paul from unbelievable trials, unbelievable pain, suffering, torture, being stoned. He didn't save Paul from that. The Apostles, all of them except John, they died martyrs' deaths. God didn't rescue them because he never promised to. He said, in this world you will have tribulation. Uh, not the great tribulation, by the way, but you will have tribulation. I uh, said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. Uh, people saved and unsaved get diseases and die. So I, I for the life of me, uh, except that you have way too much prosperity, gospel junk, that you've taken in, for the life of me, I don't understand anybody can read their Bible and think that God is obligated to spare us from the curse of a fallen world. So um, just check out who you're listening to. Uh, read your Bible. You're going to find that the real Jesus is wonderful. And it's not the real Jesus if you think his job is to make all of your problems go away. You know, uh, you, you can't read the New Testament. This is for you, Anonymous, and for anybody else. Uh, and not understand that suffering is part of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says that we have the privilege of sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. Peter says these kind of painful trials are worth more than gold because they make us more like Jesus. Trials are part of life in this fallen world. And we want to escape trials, and who doesn't? But the reality is that they can't be avoided. We get sick, we die, we have car crashes. God doesn't save us from all of those things. What he saves us from is the one disease that's eternally fatal, and that's the disease of sin. And we need to be so grateful for that that we, we couldn't ask a question anonymous like the one you just asked. It's almost like, God, you owe this to me. He owes you nothing. We owe him everything. That's the real Jesus. Gary says, oh, there's another one, <laughs> that God demands worship. <clears throat> Let me read it, different inflection. 
that God demands worship makes him seem insecure. Why would God require worship? Well, Gary, God knows that we become like whatever we worship. We worship money, then we become cold and hard-hearted, selfish, driven. If we worship pleasure, if that's our little G-God, then we become um, wicked and sinful. Um, But when we worship God, the real God, we become more like him. God is certainly not insecure. He doesn't need anything from any of us. But he realizes that worshiping him is best for all of us. And he wants the best for us. In fact, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, indicates that the reason we were born, the reason we were created, was to worship God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine for a moment um, a, a Kentucky Derby racehorse? And they hitch him up to a tractor to pull a tractor. No, he was born to run free and to run fast. And when he's running free, that's when life is is best for that horse. Well, like those racehorses, we were born to run with Jesus, to enjoy the freedom that he bought. And, you know, when we're not worshiping God, uh, then we're not in the place where God wants us to be. And we can never enjoy the abundant life that God wants us to. So God demands worship because it's best for us. One of the frustrating things, Gary, and I don't know what the genesis of this question is, but one of the things that that uh, frustrates me as a pastor is that people think they can only worship God when things are going well. When things are not going well, we ought to worship him even more. Because we don't have to go through those difficult things alone. We can worship him. He'll be with us. He will comfort us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. But you see, it all starts with genuine worship. It's unfortunate. And one of the things about our Leviticus study that will be clear throughout the entirety of the book is that in in the Old Testament, whenever you see worship, something dies. You know, we come to church and there's music and we think that's worship. Well, that's one manifestation of worship. But but what God wants to happen is that when we come to worship, we die to ourselves so we can live in him and for him. And um, believe me, that's not insecure. God is a jealous God, not jealous of us. He's jealous for us. And God wants the best for us, and he knows the best for each and every one of us is in worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Gary, I hope that makes sense to you. Um, Philip says, Pastor Ron, if God knows every choice we're going to make, why should we pray? This is a question, Philip, that I get pretty frequently uh, here on the program. Uh, We should pray because he said to. Doesn't that make sense to you? He said to pray, to pray without ceasing. Isn't that enough motivation to pray? Do we have enough faith to believe that if we pray, God will hear and God will answer? Do we have enough faith to believe that prayer sometimes changes the heart and the mind of God? Now, that doesn't mean he didn't know it was going to change, but God sometimes put the the burden of prayer uh, in our hearts because he wants to use us to effect a change. He wants us to be heartbroken over people that are going to be lost. So we're to pray for them continuously. Jesus said we're to pray for our enemies. Why would we pray for our enemies if God knows why they're our enemies? Well, the answer is because God doesn't want them to be our enemies. He wants to use us to win them to the family of God. So we pray because he said so. And it's time that as Christians, Philip, we stop Asking God the the question that makes sense to us but make no sense to him. Why pray, Lord? He says, do you trust me enough to know that what I want for you is the best? And if we live our lives toward him, if we live our lives for him, well, that's part of what walking by faith is all about. So, yes, God knows every choice you're going to make. But he still wants you to pray. There's one other benefit. uh, Actually, two other benefits to praying, Philip. One is uh, as we pray... Uh, we become more like the one to whom we're praying. 
Um, you know, you're, you're, you're hanging out with Jesus. You're talking to him. And that's all prayer is. It's a conversation. Um, but we become more like him. You get to know him better. And then the third reason is because if you pray, then God will give you ears to hear his response. And we, we need to be able to talk to God, but we need to listen to him as well. Prayer is a dialogue and not a monologue. So um, that's why we're going to pray. And by the way, would you want to pray to a God who didn't know every choice you're going to make? And a lot of times we're going to make a bad choice. God knows we're going to make a bad choice. So the Spirit of God convicts us. And and some of those people get to the place where they make another choice. And God kind of puffs out his chest and says, Oh, I knew they were going to make the right choice. But you see, he's the one that motivated that right choice. So uh, we pray because Jesus said to pray. And remember, we call him Lord. I don't think uh, there are very... Uh, I think there are very few people out there who uh, don't use the word Lord in their prayer over and over and over and over. Well, if he's really your Lord, then he calls the shots. We do what he says. So I hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We've only got about five minutes left in the program, so got time for a quick call if you're out there. Here is an anonymous question. He says, if we all have the same Holy Spirit, how do you explain the differences in doctrines and practices among believers? This is really an interesting question, anonymous. And the reason it's interesting uh, is because while the Word of God is perfect, and of course the Spirit of God who, who wrote the Word of God is perfect, but here's the problem. We who interpret that are imperfect and we bring biases, uh, preconceived ideas and notions um, every time we open our Bible. And the whole one of the whole reasons that we, we really dig in and devour our Bibles is because the more we hear from him, the more we change and we start to think like him. So um, there are biases um, and, and, and imperfect interpretations. Uh, the reality is that those imperfect interpretations, some of them are quite serious. Uh, others of them um, get to silly. But, but open your Bible, sort of flush your brain, and have your mind and heart willing to be changed every single time that you do this. Okay, I think we got time for one more question here. Um, anonymous from our mobile app, can you help me understand how someone with severe mental disability will be saved? You know, God only holds us accountable for what we know and what we do with what we know. Yeah, Romans 1 makes that pretty clear. And, um, you know, um, um, somebody who doesn't have the capacity to understand right and wrong is like a, a child, a baby. Um, and God in his infinite grace, God because he wants them to spend forever with him, God because in part he wants to, to, to heal them of their severe mental disease or disability, um, that's when they will be in the fullness of the presence of God. So they're saved uh, because of God's compassion, because of God's love. But please understand, God will never hold somebody accountable for what they did not know or what they did not understand. There is certainly a different standard for people of different ages, of different uh, mental capacities, um, um, but they're saved because God is compassionate. God is slow to anger. God's abounding in love. And God wants him in heaven. So that's how they're going to be saved. You know, uh, you can tell them about Jesus and sometimes you can get a response. Uh, but the reality is we rest on the goodness, the fairness, and the justice of God. Very important question, especially uh, as we see autism rising. Uh, we see other mental disabilities, some of them severe. Um, God loves all of these people. And he wants to be with them. And I imagine... One of the great delights of his heart will be when people who were severely disabled here are in heaven and they're in their full glory in the presence of the Lord. So uh, that's how we know. Romans chapter 1. Let me see if i got time for one more. 
maybe a quick one. Let's see what we got. Russell said, what did Jesus mean in John 14 when he said the Father is greater than he? I thought they were one. They are one, but what Jesus said, uh, uh, the Father is greater than he is, um, he, he just in his incarnation, Jesus accepted the limitations of, of physicality. Uh, in heaven, of course, Jesus had no limitations, but in his incarnation, he became one of us. He accepted the same limitations, Russell, that you and I have. And so uh, he didn't mean greater in character, greater in nature, but simply during Jesus' ministry on earth, he was submitted to the Father. He never did or said anything they didn't see or hear his Father say. He submitted to the will of his Father for every single thing, never even had an independent thought of his own. Um, So in that capacity, he said the Father is greater, but not, again, in character, not in nature or purpose. Good question, Russell. Thank you very, very much. That does it for our show on this Monday. Uh, you've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Remember our Sweet Summer Devotion series tonight uh, at 7 o'clock. Trish Dominguez will be speaking. Bless her. Pray for her. We'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM630 The Word. See you there. for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.